This is a Rooster Teeth production. Time doesn't stop, and it's coming for all of us. Welcome to 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we explore topics and histories of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. I'm Elise Willems. And I'm Jessica Vasami. In 2016, an LA-based company called Seize the Day Technology debuted a novelty piece of home decor that sent the internet into the throes of existential crisis, a digital clock. Not unlike the kind of clock you might find on your nightstand, though. Well, a nightstand in a hotel room, I think, because anecdotally speaking, most of us who are millennials or younger don't really use digital clocks anymore. We just use our phones, but that's neither here nor there. Continue, Jess. But why, you might be asking yourself, would a digital clock cause so much of a hubbub? This wasn't just any old clock. It was known as the 28 clock. The 28 clock's purpose was to tell a story of time, but one that people don't usually like to hear. Mm -mm. It was designed to count down its owner's remaining days. And it did this by calculating its owner's date of birth versus average human life expectancy, which is around 28,000 days, hence the name of the clock. In theory, this clock would provide a constant ticking reminder of mortality, which might be motivating or life-affirming to some people. And perhaps viewed as a gruesome gadget by others. Seize the day were proponents of the former. They claimed the clock was created to motivate people and help them live their lives to the fullest. You see, time can be tough to conceptualize for most people. It's an abstraction and can be difficult to fully conceive of, especially in large quantities. The 28 clock sought to ground the fleeting ephemeral nature of time and present it in a tangible way. Or at least as much as possible for the cost of $49 before shipping and handling. (laughs) It's safe to say that the 28 clock wasn't a million dollar idea in the end, but it was certainly thought provoking. And it's a good jumping off point for our episode today in which we explore the morbid nature of time. Mm, Which must sound like the perfect topic for a podcast called 30 Morbid Minutes. And it is for good reason. It's all coming together. Fun fact, the original title of this show was 60 Morbid Minutes, which, yeah, it was a play on, you guessed it, 60 Minutes. But then I started working on the episodes and I realized that 60 Minutes is a lot more work to script than 30. And you're all really busy people. You don't have time to listen to 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes worth of morbid (laughs) content. Jess and I don't have, so we just figured that 30 Morbid Minutes made sense. Yes. No matter the name, there was something about giving the show a limited, restrictive window of time that felt congruent with talking about morbid topics and death. Yeah, there's a sense of finality to it. The feeling that each of our episodes is its own ticking countdown clock. And depending on how you feel about it, you either can't wait or never want it to end. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Hopefully the latter. Otherwise, I'm not sure why you're listening. But yes, we created our own segregations in parameters for time on 30 Morbid Minutes. Yeah, we divide our show into seasons, and someday we will release our last season, and there won't be any more episodes after that. It will be finite. It will be the end. Done. That's it. This podcast, in and of itself, is a microcosm of life. Not really. That's a dramatic analogy, but it's our show, so it's the one we get to make. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and after we decided on this 30-minute time frame and the title, we thought, okay, well, we need a strong visual to go with this, a show logo, yes. namely. Yes, yes, yes. Some brilliant talent at our company, Rooster Teeth, named Ken and Michelle, worked to help us design our logo. But it was clear from the outset that time would be the driving theme. We experimented with an analog clock logo that was shaped like a skull. It was really great, but it just didn't match the simplistic symbolism of what we ultimately went with, an hourglass, its contents also assuming the shape of a skull. The skull, I think, was our thing, mm-hmm. Jess. We just, mm-hmm. you know, skeleton skulls. For it's sure. It's poetic and creepy and then a little bit funny in a twisted way. The hourglass as a symbol represents the notion that time is finite. When that last grain of sand runs through the narrow neck from that upper bulb into the lower bulb, that's it. Time has run out. Kaput. The hourglass is a very clear visual representation of time. The sand passing through the neck is the present, the collection of sand in the lower bulb is the past, and the sand cradled in the upper bulb is the future. The sand that was the future can, in the blink of an eye, become the sand of the past. The predecessor of the hourglass is a clepsydra, or a water clock. Similar to an hourglass, it measures time through an accumulation of water into or out of a vessel or container. Early models date back all the way to 600 BCE. No one knows exactly who invented the hourglass. The first documented use was by a French monk in the 18th century ACE. It didn't even enter common use until the 14th century, and... At that time, it was as part of sea navigation. With the invention of the analog clock, the hourglass fell out of use as a time-telling tool. However, it endures as a symbol. In our episode in which we detailed tombstone origins and symbolism, we touched upon the various symbols and monuments that grave markers use and what those symbols represent. You might see an hourglass motif in cemeteries to represent the passage of time, like in the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, where there's a giant carved winged hourglass over its entrance. You might see hourglass imagery on an individual grave to denote life cut too short. The hourglass shape has even been adopted by urn manufacturers to hold and create a shrine for cremated remains. Mm, Yep. And this isn't just for show. These are functional hourglass urns. So the ashes go into a real hourglass and act just as the sand would passing through the neck between the bulbs. Imagine this, Jess. Okay, <laughs> I have died a very tragic, untimely death. All mourned by all. Of course, the package arrives on your doorstep, and you're like, "What's this?" Yep. And you open it up, and it's a beautiful gold-leafed, ornate hourglass. And then you think, "This is an exquisite gift. I wonder who this is from." <laughs> and you see, it's from me, and you're like, "What? How?" You're shocked. At least it's been dead. How is this possible? I'm in it. I'm in that hourglass. And it's the exact amount of time that would need to pass between Nina the turtle's feedings. Oh, so the way that your brain works just (laughs) is so incredible. All you need to do is set me on your mantle. Wow. Watch me pass through the bulbs. And when the last grain of me falls, then, you know, Nina's hungry. That was incredible, Elise. I don't, I can't even, like, that was so, I, like, I pictured all of it, pure visualization. Um, It's going to be a helpful tool. You didn't pre-order the new iPhone or the new Apple Watch, did you? I sure did not. Because you don't need it. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, I don't need it anymore. Oh, man. Because you've got a pear-shaped watch. 
coming to you. I, I just can't time. wait. And now we okay. know what, you know, after our previous episode about funerals and cremation and all that, now I know what actually is in those ashes along with your body. So many breast implants. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you enough know. fooling, enough fooling. Tell us, <laughs> tell us more about what people actually want to know. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Father Time, the mythical personification of time, is depicted as an old man carrying an hourglass or a similar timepiece, the, the main tool on his belt. Sometimes he's shown carrying a scythe, which can lead to Father Time being confused with the Grim Reaper. Yeah, a lot of art where they're like having, you know, tea together mm-hmm. and hanging out because they kind of go part and parcel together. It makes sense. And not just because of the scythe, both of these characters, these personifications uphold a similar theme that time is inescapable. And they, yeah, they probably hang out and they're like drinking Mai Tais together, laughing at us and our mortality. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But the imagery of that scythe gets the point across in a particularly morbid and scary way that there's just never enough time. Ugh, the thought crosses my mind every day. And yeah, there just there just isn't. Yeah. <laughs> time is a valuable, non-renewable resource. And watching it pass by can invoke feelings of fear and anxiety. I know for me, that is absolutely true. For some people, it's classified as a real and specific phobia known as chronophobia. Chronophobia is an overwhelming fear and panic associated with the passage of time. It's common among incarcerated persons, so much so that it's sometimes known as prison neurosis. And which I guess, Jess, there's a reason it's called doing time. Now I get it. I could see why if you're in prison and you're looking down, especially without parole, and you're looking down this endless routine and countdown of days, like you might develop that phobia. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a phobia that's manifested in various ways throughout history and across cultures. And we see it explicitly in doomsday theories and the end of the world predictions. Yeah. We still have the modern day soothsayers and grifters who spout prophecies of the world ending. And then when it doesn't happen, they just push it to a new benchmark that they can prophesize to people. Mm -hmm. I don't know if all of you remember this time, but I remember it quite vividly. Um, <laughs> back in 2012, everyone thought the world would end due to the Mesoamerican long count calendar, commonly referred to as the Mayan calendar. December 12th, 2012 marked the end of a 5,126-year-old cycle prophesized to bring the return of Bolan Yokti, a Mayan god associated with war and creation. Do you remember this? I, oh, absolutely. I mean, I was more worried about Y2K at the time. I'm still yeah. worrying about Y2K. But yeah, 2012, it was the big thing. Oh, man. I I was, I don't know if I was hoping for it, but I was like, let me see something happen. I want to see something happen. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite 2012 story Seth Rogen tells in his book, your book, about how he was in a meeting where George Lucas was talking about making his spaceship. And it was this, in 2012, he sold Star Wars and Seth Rogen's like, did he think the world was ending and he was going to fly off the planet in a spaceship? And that's yeah. why he sold Star Wars. <laughs> Anyway, but yeah. No, there there was like, and, and even during that time, I read a bunch of crazy stuff online of, of people that truly did believe that this was happening and doing insane, crazy things. I heard of this one party on a beach. It was a huge, huge party where people were just like, we're dying. So there were like massive orgies, tons of drug taking, just no one gave a crap. And then of course the world did not end. And then there was a bunch of fallout after that. <laughs> 
as you can imagine. You know, you definitely know there was somebody on that beach that did not think the world was ending, but was like, oh, uh, yeah, the world's ending. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, let's let's do this. Let's fucking go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, get off the beach because scholars were quick to point out that there were a lot of misinterpretations happening of this Mayan calendar even though the media and the public really latched on. And John Cusack was pretty surprised, too. <laughs> this is a reference to the film 2012 <laughs> starring John Cusack. I love that I just you just had to say out. it. I, you yeah. had to, like, say that is a reference. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely have seen it. I love Doomsday movies. But also, Jess, there are some organizations that think we are going to be around for thousands and thousands of years, right? And boy, do I want to talk to these organizations. Um, I'd love to know more about that. The Long Now Foundation, established in 1996, is a nonprofit founded by entrepreneurs with the mission of encouraging imagination at the time scale of civilization, the next and the last 10,000 years, what they refer to as the Long Now Perhaps the most notable of the Long Now's projects is the 10,000-year clock. This was conjured during Silicon Valley's era of techno-optimism, and it's a timepiece designed to tick once a year with little intervention for 10 millennia. Mm. Yep. <laughs> Construction has been underway for some time. Maybe you have seen news articles referring to it by one of its other names, the Millennium Clock or the Clock of the Long Now. You can't tour it just yet unless, you know, your personal pals with old Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. Former Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos spent a reported $42 million to build it inside a mountain he owns in Van Horn, Texas. Jess, I don't know why we don't have you on like location right now in Van Horn. Yeah, the... I didn't know that Bezos also owns a mountain. So, you of know. Of course he does. Of course he does. <laughs> and yeah, they drilled a 500-foot shaft down into the mountain to build this clock and the infrastructure. And it's built adjacent to Bezos's private Blue Origin spaceport. <laughs> So, you know, he looks at his clock and he's like, uh-oh, time to go to space. God, man. I mean, to be so rich, to have so much money, to concern yourself with these incredible projects that deal with, like, humanity and time and space and all of that, where the rest of us are just here, like, having anxiety on, yeah. like, is that next email coming in? Or, yeah, I'm like, like, when's like, that contract signed? Yeah. <laughs> Your your biggest project is meal prepping for the week. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I really need to lose two pounds. Yeah. But the initial intent of the clock was to build something that's easy to repair, durable, and made of inexpensive materials should the clock itself become lost to the sands of time or obsolete to future generations. Yeah, with the state of the world and the dangers and threats of climate change and other resource issues, will humanity even be around to observe the final tick of the 10,000-year clock? I mean, I won't be, so. But <laughs> skeptics would say no and likely to look to the doomsday clock instead. Perhaps the ultimate representation of chronophobia and humanity's unique penchant for engineering our own downfall. Yeah, the Doomsday Clock was created in 1947 by the Chicago atomic scientists and indicates the likelihood of man-made global catastrophe. It was made sort of in response to nuclear proliferation of the time and the heightened possibility of war, but encompasses so much more than that. 
The hand's proximity to midnight tells us how threatened humanity is due to the negative impacts of technologies of our own design. At its original inception, the hand was set at seven minutes to midnight. Since 2020, it's been at 100 seconds to midnight. Wow. So like just under two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> yeah. Two minutes to midnight, which is also our band name, Jess mm, and I, our, mm-hmm. our emo band. This is the closest the clock has ever been to midnight to the forewarned apocalypse. If it hits midnight, you better download as many episodes of 30 Morbid Minutes as you can because you're going to need entertainment in the bunker. Trust me. <laughs> you're giving me a chronophobia. <laughs> Sorry, Jez. Please go on. Tell us more about your new neuroses. <laughs> yeah, I have tons now. Um, but yes, I have firsthand uh, perspective now for sure. Chronophobia has been connected to the COVID-19 pandemic. Research shows that quarantine and the pandemic have fundamentally changed our perception of time, largely due to the absence of memory milestones and new building blocks experiences. Reduced daily routines compounded with heightened stressors have disrupted our ability to process time from an enjoyment perspective. Isolation from others can give the sense that time is flying by, especially if a big chunk of time goes by without someone seeing you and like you don't see them and then they change considerably Mm -hmm. in appearance. This can be kind of shocking to your brain. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And as if the pandemic hasn't been bleak enough, we're now confronted by what it's done to our neurological states. It's true. I do feel like the pandemic just flew by. It feels like a dream. Like it's like a weird, oh, bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But there's no single organ or system in the body that keeps track of time, which is so interesting to think about. Like a lot of our perception of time depends on banking how windows of time feel, then juxtaposing those memories to compare and grasp durations of time. Basically, the human brain can estimate the length of an event from two different perspectives. A perspective vantage which happens while an event is still happening and underway, or a retrospective one, which is when you look back on it after it's over. And when a routine is like mundane or too routine, it can make time feel like it's passing too quickly because we have a record of this already in our memory. We're not creating new temporal benchmarks between events. This also plays a role in in how time can feel like it speeds up as you get older. And we're going to talk more about how time changes and feels when you get older after a word from our sponsors. Jess, we live in beautiful, bright, sunny places, but what do you do to keep all that sun from making you squint? You know, I've been wearing these new Shady Rays. They're an independent sunglass company that makes really high quality sunglasses. I've been wearing them too, and I can confirm they're as good as any expensive pair I've worn with durable frames and extremely clear polarized lenses for all my outdoor adventures. Yes. I honestly, I'm going to admit, I had another pair of sunglasses that I've been wearing a lot, but I wear these. Ever since I got them, I've been wearing them nonstop. They're so easy to like flip back and forth in my head. They don't like catch on my hair. I know that sounds silly, but like that's something I really do love about them. Me too. And, um, I don't know. I I know we both got the sandstone sunglasses. They're beautiful. You can dress them up or down. They look great yes. with anything. That's my favorite part about them is that I feel like I do look kind of, you know, like, oh, I'm walking down the street in my nice fly outfit. But also if I look like trash, I still look cool. <laughs> <laughs> and not, not possible. But You're go sweet. on. Yeah. 
And they also, you know, help our eyeballs from catching on fire. And Shady Rays has your back long after you purchase. All their pairs are protected by lost and broken replacements. So when I accidentally step on mine, which I will, they'll send me a brand new pair, no questions asked. On top of it, Shady Rays also donates 10 meals to fight hunger with every purchase. That means you can look great and help out the world too. Absolutely. And Shady Rays is giving out their best deal of the season to our listeners. Go to ShadyRays.com and use 30MM for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. That's 30MM for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Hi, Jessica. Have you heard of a new D&D podcast from Rooster Teeth? No, I haven't. Please tell me about it. <laughs> well, if you are a fan of Stranger Things like I am, or you're watching House of Dragons right now and you're wondering what does the dragon smell like, or you're a D&D veteran who loves the game, there's Tales from the Stinky Dragon, a hilarious audio D&D podcast from our friends here at Rooster Teeth. Yes. Uh, join Dungeon Master Gus Sarola each week as he guides Barbara Dunkelman, Krista Maris, Blaine Gibson, and John Reisinger through a hilarious campaign where they play interns for a group of mighty adventurers known as the Infinites. <laughs> but when they arrive for the first day of the job, these newbies discover their world-famous employers have been kidnapped. Can these hapless interns save the day? Or will the back-flipping, ghost-fighting, pirate-loving group need to be saved themselves? It's a fun and raucous time, and you can be part of it if you go listen to Tales from the Stinky Dragon right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the show. Jess, why do I feel so weird about time as I get older and feel like I just don't have enough of it? I know. I have this thought all the time. It's pretty common as you get older to reflect upon your youth, especially childhood, and you just kind of feel like you just had more time back then, like the days passed so much slower. And I always think of like my anxiety because I'm like, as a child, my brain isn't like racing all the time with anxiety, bills to pay, things no. I have to do, the ever-growing list. You know what I mean? No, your Ugh. brain has not learned compartmentalization yet. You're not thinking about all the stuff you have to do. Mm -mm. And as a kid, you just had fewer responsibilities, which also mm -hmm. gives you more time too. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, it has to do with largely the fact that childhood consists of new and fresh experiences and constantly learning. It's just, oh, what a magical time. I miss it yeah. so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So as a kid, you're like having all these experiences and everything's new to you. And then as you get older, your life becomes more routine. So you lose this, you lose doing everything for the first time and everything feeling fresh. Mm -hmm. And, and so your time also accounts for a smaller percentage. Yes. When you're 10 years old, one year is 10% of your life at 50. It's much, much less around like two, 3%. Yeah. So the ratio of your life lived is like so much smaller, mm -hmm. but our sense of time is also impacted by the proliferation and integration of technology into our day-to-day -day lives, which might not sound scary, but we're definitely only starting to truly understand how technology is distorting our cognitive function and driving us to live our lives at this unprecedented accelerated pace. Yeah, God, the, the big thing often pointed to is the damn smartphone. We have limitless information at our fingertips all day, every day. U.S. knowledge workers waste 25% of their time dealing with data streams, costing the economy $997 billion annually. 
Mm-hmm. For-profit companies use technology also to just create a greater sense of urgency, especially in the market. So like, for example, Google's real-time search results, they'll show you airline and hotel prices as these like fleeting things. Like you got to get them now, mm-hmm. otherwise you're not going to get them. And they'll show you the dwindling number of flights and ro- rooms mm-hmm. available to kind of drive up this false sense of scarcity. Mm-hmm. 100%. And, and love it or hate it, but social media is also warping our brains. It tells us that you need to live in the moment, share in the moment, and always be online. Yeah, you have to always be engaged. And mm-hmm. if you're not posting, you're not relevant. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Our perception of time used to be aligned with the natural metabolic speed of our bodies. But now technology is what we're trying to keep pace with. So we're contradicting our own human nature. We replace long term growth and success with immediate dopamine releases like shopping online or within seconds locating information we'd otherwise scour a book for. Technology asks that we prescribe to a certain speed and a certain pressure, and this can be truly exhausting. Oh, yeah. The immediacy of technology, mm-hmm. like the the feeding your endorphins mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> of like, yep. I can. I can buy this or I can order this and this will be here within an hour. <laughs> I just did that this morning. Yep. It's, oh. <laughs> oh God. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And also just the information aspect of it too, of yeah. like, you used to sit with your friends and you would debate over something or you would try to think of what something was, but now you just Google it. Absolutely. All the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And studies show that people tend to overestimate the amount of time that's passed while they're on their phone or computer. Yep. Uh, while technology can help us be more efficient, our brain still can't account for the newly found free time that technology has granted us. There's still a pressure to perform. Mm-hmm. Tempest fugit, which means time flies. Mm. And it does. And should we even be worrying, though? Like, is this something that we should be concerning ourselves with? Because the opposite end of this discourse comes from scientists and thinkers in the relativity space who think that time is completely irrelevant and it's all in our head, that time is a construct and our brains shape the universe. I love this. I love this. I yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is the theory of biocentrism that, quote, We as humans are at the heart of a great web of space and time whose threads are connected according to laws that dwell in our minds. Jess, you like this because it's the matrix. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that and like also the weird, you've seen Interstellar. Yes. Yeah. And like the theory of relativity and Mm -hmm. like time and space, like bending. It's, it's, it's incredible. And I, my brain will start hurting if I think about it too much, but yeah. I love it. <laughs> well, I think this is also thinking like the idea, the very concept of death is in your head because we humans are manifesting time. Like it's very, this is a very, very heady theory mm-hmm. and it's been criticized because it really places a lot of emphasis on the individual mm-hmm. and it's very existential and it's a lot, it's very tied to the perception of time and it's, yep. oh, it's, it's very, yeah. I know. I know. And I'm a worrier and now I'm worried that I'm worrying for nothing because like time is all in my head. So it's I like, know. <laughs> you know, you know, know. Um, it's like we made this construct and now we're worrying about it, but we were the, the architects of it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How Ugh. do we hold back the sands of time, Elise? Oh, great question, Jess. <laughs> And it begs an answer that some of our brightest minds are searching for with financing from some of our richest meat puppets. 
<laughs> this is yet another project paid for by Jeff Bezos that I'm about to tell you about through his investment office, which is called Bezos Expeditions. Um, he invested a huge sum to support the work of Altos Labs, a biotech startup founded to develop life extension therapies. Oh, man. The researchers working at Altos Lab are tasked with one directive, how to make people younger. Yeah. And if you look at the company's mission statements and reports and stuff, you'll see a lot of buzzwords like cellular rejuvenation, anti-aging, biological reprogramming, aging reversal, cell health, etc. But it's all just fancy speak for the objective, which is to make Jeff Bezos a young, beautiful, billionaire infant baby. <laughs> Like a baby boss. Like a baby boss. I mean, I don't know. I think he just needs to watch like Hocus Pocus and just like suck the life out of young children. Like just do that. All this crazy stuff. I'm just kidding. I mean, we don't know what's happening at Altos. We don't. We have no idea. Um, Some of the world's leading scientific minds have been drawn to this company. Juan Carlos Espesua Belamonte, sorry if I butchered that, a Spanish biologist at the Salk Institute who has predicted that human lifespans could be increased by 50 years. Gosh, what a statement. Right? Steve Horvath, a UCLA professor and developer of a biological clock, quote unquote, that can accurately measure human aging. So I guess measuring like how fast you're aging an individual or how much they're going to age over a certain t- I don't know. I, yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. Um, and also Shinya Yamanaka, who was awarded a 2012 Nobel prize for reprogramming research done on the cells of mice. Yeah. He has a whole new like set of programming uh, research named after him. It's incredible. It's cool. Yeah. In April, 2022, researchers from the Babraham Institute announced that they developed a new time jump technique that enabled them to reverse the damage of age in cells by 30 years. Uh, that's crazy. When I first read this time jump, I immediately thought of like that movie jumper. I'm like, Oh my gosh, oh, yeah. are we going to be <laughs> teleporting? Are they doing something? But no, yeah. a Hayden Christensen classic. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, you know, a lot of this harkens back to our cloning episode and the discussion of playing God. You know, you should go back and listen to that episode if you're looking for some deeper information and some uh, sweet Jurassic Park references as well. Yes, from two clever girls. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I in reading about this kind of cellular reversal research and stuff, I came across this one point that apparently a lot of research has been done that shows that potentially... Once a person hits 112 years old, they just kind of stop aging. Like their cells stop aging. Their cells are like, this is as old as as it's going to (laughs) get. Wow. Like they can keep living. Maybe maybe if they age to another benchmark, they would start aging again. But that's what they were finding, 112. But also, you know, it kind of brings the question of like, would you, me just asking you, Elise, like, would you want to live for longer than the average 80 years? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Especially like if I was in good health. For sure. You know, I if I was, the, if they were reversing cellular damage in my body and I was still f- feeling very um, like capable and able and physically able to do things. Yes, I would absolutely want to. Would you? I, yes, but I, but I wouldn't want to be like a mortal. Not that we're talking about anybody being immortal. I, th- I th- they're talking about like 30, 50 years. Um, yes, I think I would probably take that again with the same circumstances. Like I'm still able to like 
walk and do things and I could still see the world and I'm able to process information and hold conversations, you know, and all, yeah. all of that, that is different from, you know, somebody in their eighties. But yeah, I definitely wouldn't want to stay, be alive forever, but I would love to add, you know, a couple more years to that, uh, to my life for well, sure. Do you fear that, you know, Nina's going to outlive you? What's going to happen to her? Honestly, I think about it all the time and I'm yeah. not kidding as in, she is going to live another 50 years. And and granted, I might be like, who knows? Probably not. Um, but yeah, I'm like, what are we going to do with her? I tell them, I'm like, what are we going to do with her? Like, she's just going to be alive, just still eating strawberries and trash, you know? <laughs> <laughs> just, what is she doing? Uh, I don't know. We just, so we should make a shirt that says strawberries and trash. <laughs> yeah. Just like Nina's <laughs> face. turtles all over it. Yeah. Uh, there's the adage of, you know, time... Or, or wealth is the dream of the young and youth is the dream of the like old and wealthy old. Mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I want to be rich and old. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Why not both? Why not both? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is morbid for sure to think about. Yeah. And it, it's the kind of thing where I also think about how we look at something like trying to reverse aging and we might think of it as super villain uh, behavior, but it's mm. like, well, we do lots of other things to, I mean, I'm a proponent of genetic, you know, um, science and, mm-hmm. and things that are done in, in medically. Yeah. And so I'm kind of like, well, it might just be that this is the next, uh, iteration of how are we medically taking care of ourselves? Like we're prolonging our, we prolong our lives anyway with medical procedures. So why not in this way? Oh, absolutely. That is yeah. very true. And we do all kinds of other crazy shit. <laughs> oh, I'll, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Yeah. So maybe I, we're making out time to be a morbid thing, which I think it can be. It, a- absolutely. Yeah. But we got some, um, I think that's the end of our episode. We got, you know, I don't know if you know this yet. We have a new t-shirt coming to the Rooster Sea store, unless it's already out. It might be. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but I don't know either, but it's like a spirit board shirt. Yes. I'm very excited for it. And just in time for the spooky month, mm-hmm. October. Mm-hmm. So can't wait for that. And October hits, I just wear a lot of purple lipstick and I'm going to be wearing all my 30 more minute shirts feeling real witchy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe just we, we see each other before the end of October. Maybe we... Do a few spells. Yeah. yeah do do a here. <laughs> we'll probably go to Disneyland. <laughs> saying, but <laughs> yes, fingers crossed. Yeah. We'll do some spells at Disneyland. Um, yeah. So yeah. Next week on the show, we're covering the history of Halloween. So and, excited. And uh, how our favorite holiday came to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Jess, another episode deeper into existential crisis. <laughs> It's not like I don't think about it enough every day. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, everybody who's been leaving us reviews and tweeting at us. And let us know more of the stuff that you want to hear. And also let us know your angles on the morbidity of time. Yeah. Because we tried to cover a a whole bunch of the ways in which you might perceive time as morbid. But I'm sure there's much, much more. For sure. That we could have talked about. So let us know so we can all enjoy together. Yep. And have crises together. Yep. You want to go have a crisis together right now? You know it. 
All right, cool. <laughs> well, I'll see you, see you in the bathroom. See you there. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>